This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Novelist and short story writer Russell Banks died this past January 7th at the age of 82. This is the second of two interviews conducted with the author, this time for his novel, The Darling. At the time of Russell Banks' death, he'd written 14 novels, six collections of short stories, two books of poetry, and three works of nonfiction. Among his most well-known novels are Affliction, The Sweet Hereafter, and Cloud Splitter. The interview was conducted in the KPFA studios on November 11, 2004. My guest is Russell Banks, whose latest novel is The Darling. Earlier novels include Cloud Splitter, Affliction, The Sweet Hereafter. Russell Banks, this book, The Darling, most of it takes place in Liberia. Mm. And I understand that the idea for it, in a sense, grew out of your work on Cloud Splitter, which was about John Brown, Mm. and has some material about the return to Liberia. Yeah, actually, it was in the early 90s doing research for Cloud Splitter, and therefore doing research on the early anti-slavery movement in the 1820s and 30s. I knew a little bit about Liberia already, but not a great deal. But it was very interesting to me to find out that it was a creation of white anti-slavery Christians in the North in collaboration with slaveholders in the South to solve, as they saw it, the growing race problem in the United States because there were increasing numbers of freed blacks um, on the streets of Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. And this made the more conservative wing of the anti-slavery movement a little uncomfortable. It also allowed the the slaveholders to ship out, from their point of view, ship out these blacks who gave the lie, in a way, to the racist mythology uh, because they were creating communities and they were getting education and setting up institutions, social and, and economic institutions, and so forth. So it was harder to support the arguments that were propping up slavery. So it had this dark, ironic connection to the history of race in the United States, and that's really what I sort of parked in the back of my mind. I thought, someday I want to deal with this chapter in the history of a race in America because it's, it's, um, it's got a lot to do with the world today in a way um, and the connection between the United States and Africa and maybe even in a larger sense the United States and the rest of the world because it ended up becoming our surrogate colony, really. While we like to claim that um, the United States never had any colonies, unlike the European countries, never had any colonies in Africa. In fact, we had a very real colony there. We just had a, a population. Our, our colonial infrastructure was, uh, was homegrown at, at, uh, in a way. But it, was just, it just lurked in the background for a number of years until other things joined it, other areas uh, of interest kind of combined to uh, to give me the material that the novel arose from. So at the time when you finished your research mm. on Cloud Splitter, mm. you knew you'd eventually get to it, but it was a question of what shape it was going to take. Right, and who was going to be there with it. You know, the characters herself, uh, I, I didn't realize I'd be writing about a woman uh, from the point of view of a 60-year-old woman who had been part of Weathermen and had gone underground and had fled to Africa. I had no idea I would be writing about that. I had no idea I'd be writing about chimpanzees and setting up a chimpanzee sanctuary in the rainforest and so forth. They came uh, to me bit by bit and later and later. But 
But the Liberia connection was there first. And, it, and of course, part of this had to do with the fact that in the late 80s, early 90s, Liberia was blowing up in civil war. And, um, and so I was aware of it. And now that I knew the history of Liberia and how it had evolved, I understood the sources for some of that violence and, and, uh, and brutality of that war. It wasn't just simply a tribal war as it was constantly being described in the United States press. Um, it was something much deeper than that and it was intricately linked to, to the history of the United States as well. At what point did you realize you were going to connect the revolutionary fervor of 60s America yeah. with what happened in Liberia? How did that come about? Uh, separately, entirely from my interest in Liberia, I have been increasingly, I think as I neared 60 years old myself, revisiting that era in my own life. And as a result of that, have thought more and more about who were the people that I knew when I was you know, in my 20s and in the late 60s and early 70s. When I was politically active, although I was never in Weatherman, I was in SDS and, and helped establish my ch- the chapter at my university, the University of North Carolina. And, I, and a lot of people I knew went on beyond and, and continued and, and, and whose lives were completely shaped by that experience and maybe misshapen in some ways as well. And I started thinking as I was nearing 60, who were they, especially the women? Because I was not smart enough to look around and know them very well. Wait, wait, when you say you weren't smart enough to look around and know them. Well, this was the 1960s. I was a man in my 20s, and and most of us looked at the men. And and that was the cadre that we understood. The women workers, uh, in a way, were working harder than we were and, and sacrificing more in many ways and not getting anywhere near the attention. So let's, I mean, what I mean is like my attention wasn't sufficiently engaged by the women. So in a sense, even though they were part of the movement, mm. they were still cooking the food. Yeah, that's and right. And, 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 and have complained about that ever since <laughs> with some real justice, believe me. And, and uh, so but I, was think, I started thinking about them. Who were they really? And where are they now? And how does their past look to them, that period in their life look to them? There was a culture clash that I had uh, in that period of my life. Part of it had to do with class and background. My, I was from a working class, I'm from a working class background. Most of the people, the kids especially, who were involved in this part of the movement were from much more privileged backgrounds, in some ways much more advantaged than I was, and, and their experience with working people was quite different than mine. Um, it was more abstract, let's say, than concrete. And so I hadn't really figured them out. And, and I think I had a lot of operational prejudices against that uh, particular group uh, because of their background and needed to re-examine some of that as I got older. At that point, part of you was going, I'm the authentic one yeah. and you're inauthentic. Right, exactly. And you can afford to do this. I can't. I've got kids to support. I've got to go out and make a living. I don't have a trust fund, etc. I had a certain degree of resentment, and which led over years, I think, to a certain stereotyping and superficiality in my, in my thinking uh, that, you know, I wanted to challenge in, in some ways and confront. In that sense, up till the writing of Cloud Splitter, you were mostly dealing with working class men in a working class environment, and yeah. suddenly you're moving into a new world, right. which is historical fiction, and now right. you can come back right. and deal with 
something different again, but right. current. But this is still, in a sense, it's historical. I mean, in, in a sense, I suppose all fiction is historical, yeah. but this is going back to the 1960s, so it goes back about 30, 40 years and comes forward up into the 90s, or to 2001, actually. And so, yeah, this is much less so, much less conventionally historical fiction than, than Cloud Splitter. But the bigger stretch, you know, as you're alluding to, and as I was alluding to, too, was not so much for me to tell a story from the point of view of a woman, but to tell a story, I think, sympathetically from the point of view of someone from the upper class, someone from a position of ex- exceptional privilege uh, for various ways. I mean, she's from, not only is she from a wealthy old New England family, she's from a famous, uh, the daughter of a famous man. It's a kind of Dr. Spock type right. character. And, yeah. and, and, a, and a progressive man, a liberal man, uh, someone with principles who acts on his principles, you know, and much as, uh, yeah, as Spock and others uh, from that patrician class of New Englanders did, you know, William Sloan Coffin and people like that. In fact, William Sloan Coffin, I think, appears in the novel as a friend of the Briefly, family. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he gives the eulogy of a funeral. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's another world than the world I was raised in, and I had to do more of a—it was more of a stretch for me to go there than, than the fact that she was a woman. That wasn't so difficult at all. Before we move on, Russell Banks, mm-hmm. this brings up a question involving— maybe all of your work, which is that you deal with a lot of race issues mm-hmm. and now you're dealing with gender issues. Mm-hmm. But it seems that underlying it, when you say it's harder to write from the perspective of, of uh, upper class mm-hmm. or upper middle class mm-hmm. rather than a woman, mm-hmm. that makes class more, far more central to your work and to your own thoughts than one might consider. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is. Well, it, it is central, certainly. I mean, it's central to how I see the world, um, especially the world in the United States, where it's it's essentially denied, class is denied, the simple existence of classes. And if you point towards it, then you're accused of, of fomenting class war. But it is central in that sense. But, I mean, it would be normally, uh, naturally, to write from the point of view of a woman, except for the fact that I know a lot of women and, and uh, uh, have been talked to all my life by, by expressive, opinionated women, my, starting with my mother. And I have four adult daughters. I have been married four times to very expressive women. And I have a lot of women friends. So I know what they sound like when they're talking to somebody like me. So basically all I had to do in order to hear them uh, hear her, hear Hannah Musgrave talk, was know who she was talking to. Knowing that she was talking to someone like me made it very much, you know, made it easier for me to hear her. I don't know, I didn't claim to know, don't claim to know what a woman sounds like when there are no men present, any more than I know what black people sound like when there are no white people present. There were comments made by different writers that any man who writes from a woman's perspective, in some sense, is writing a transvestite role because you can never actually escape that. Mm. In the case of Hannah, I don't think that's true. She reads like a woman. The book reads as if it was written by a woman. Yeah, I haven't had any complaints yet uh, from uh, from that point of view. I mean, and, and from women, most of them feel that have spoken to me about it um, as though she's she's genuinely speaking. But that's because she's an authentic female character speaking her story. But I think, as I go back to what I was saying, I think that's because I know who she's talking to. And she's talking to a man about her age, a white guy who shares some of her education, some of her politics. Yeah, me. 
her neighbor. And, and I imagined myself from the beginning as sort of sitting on her porch um, on a glider over the course of a summer. She's telling me finally she's going to found somebody who lives in this town who will understand her story if she tells the whole of it. And she's telling the whole of her story. So there's a direct address throughout, you know, where she says, you, I'm not ready to tell you this yet. Or she, she comes forward and withdraws and so forth. There's a kind of teasing out of her story. Uh, over the course of the book. Is that why it, it maybe made it easier to make her as difficult and cold a woman mm-hmm. as she is? I was only interested in a character as difficult and not as necessarily as cold, but as ambiguous and, and complex and conflicted as she is. I mean, that's what made her interesting to me. I, mean, I had to spend three to four years of my life, you know, listening <laughs> to her uh, voice. I wanted to make sure it was going to be constantly interesting, um, and it had to be for me to come back every day and go back to work on this book every day. When you began working on the book, did you know that even though the revolutionary part of her was there, the book would not be about that? or about her life in the mm-hmm. States, but about her life as this other person, mm-hmm. Dawn Carrington mm-hmm. in Liberia. Yes, I, I knew that she was a changeling, that she was a person who, starting in early adolescence, when she changes her name for the first time to Scout and insists that that's who she is, and, and that she and she's cold and withdrawn from her parents, but given family dynamics, I knew that, that that's who she was going to be. I wanted to write about a woman who was borderline narcissistic, That was really interesting to me on the psychological level. I knew that she would shuck identities and replace them uh, as she moved through life, that each new circumstance that she entered into, she'd come up with a new identity to try to accommodate herself to it, and that ultimately she would be left in a kind of despair for not finding any coherent, ongoing, consistent reality of self. These were all interesting things to me. I mean, this is their psychological level of it. The political level of it, too, I was trying to write about uh, something I've tried to write about before, even with Cloud Splitter and other books, is sort of what I think of as the unintended consequences of good intentions. And this is, in a sense, a metaphor, I suppose, too, for the whole history of Liberia. It may even be a metaphor we could think about as for the history of the United States insofar as it, um, as it goes abroad with good intentions, or at least that's what they think they have, and then comes up with something like the mess in Iraq or wherever you want to go. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a phrase that William Volman uses in his book, uh, Rising Up, Rising Down, which is setting the moral calculus, weighing both sides and coming up with at what level is violence or mm-hmm. in, in what we would call mm-hmm. evil justified. And mm-hmm. I think Liberia, you know, we could see where the moral calculus yeah. was set far off the yeah. scale. Yeah, that, and then, but also by the same token, I mean, I think what Volman is, is pointing to, what, what fascinates me too, in this book, I think, expresses some of that as well as, as Cloud Splitter is, in terms of setting the moral calculus, is, is uh, with regard to terrorism. Because we tend to just, you know, lump all what we call terrorist acts together, whether it's committed by John Brown and Harper's Ferry or elsewhere in Potawatomi Massacre in the interest of, of, uh, of abolishing slavery or whether it's committed by the Unabomber or Timothy McVeigh or whether it's uh, weathermen building bombs um, for, to try to bomb the Pentagon in the 70s or it's terrorism being committed by on 9-11. Making these fine distinctions or the moral calculus of violence, establishing that is really an important thing to do and one which much of public life in this country doesn't want to do and doesn't want us to do. It wants to lump it all together. Once you begin asking those questions, then you begin to 
ask the underlining questions of what yeah. the country is doing yeah. as a whole. And, and you're asking about asked. context, too. Yeah. You're starting to ask complicated questions about context. And, and it's very hard to be absolutist when you start doing those, raising those questions. Well, the moment taking 9-11, the moment you mm-hmm. raise the question of, you know, what the other side is doing, the mm-hmm. people who flew the planes mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. then suddenly you're throwing the entire black and white dichotomy yeah, out yeah. of whack. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and once you start doing that, then, you know, it's not so easy to manipulate and control people. Russell Banks, at what point in the writing of this book or the formulation of this book did 9-11 happen? Oh, within a few weeks of my actual sitting down, and, and, and the problem was laying out when the opening narrative takes place, which is when she decides to return to, to Liberia in search of her sons, whom she had abandoned 10 years earlier, and her husband's grave. That takes place in the first week of September 2001, and that's pretty much the week that I started writing it. But I was aware of the fact that it was going to be an envelope for the story, that 9-11 would be, because I wanted to look at her world through the prism of this post-9-11 world, because I think there was a, a tipping point there. And she said, as she says towards the end of the book, she says, I saw that my life my story could not be told. My life could not be lived now in this contemporary era, this post-9-11 era. Why do you think that is? Several reasons, but one is, is the one that I think she's referring to is, is because her acts, her radical acts, anti-government, anti-policy, anti-imperial acts, as, as she saw it and as, as they saw it, could only be seen now as acts of terrorism, that there was a whole shift in the historical gaze on behavior, on acts like that. It could only be seen as terrorism and would be swept uh, into the same box as 9-11 acts of terrorism. The other reason is, one of the, there are many reasons why, but because of the uh, security infrastructure and the technology that supports it, which did not exist in the 70s, didn't exist really in the 80s either, that she couldn't, uh, she couldn't have lived the way she's lived. We're being watched a hell of a lot more closely now than we ever watched in, in history, uh, and certainly more so than in, in the 60s and 70s. You know, she's traveling around the world on, on, on phony passports and, and uh, phony drive, making phony driver's licenses and phony IDs and so forth for her fellow uh, weathermen and, uh, and so on. You, you simply couldn't do it this way. She springs Charles Taylor from prison. You know, I remember the weatherman springing Timothy Leary from prison and, and, and getting him all the way to Algeria. And I thought, this is kind of wonderful and amazing and a great event in some odd way. And I loved it. And I thought, well, if they could do that, they could also probably get Charles Taylor out of prison. Well, let, let's talk a little about the, the mixture, admixture here of real people mm. and fictional characters. Mm. I mean, the real people, Taylor is real. Yeah. Samuel Doe is real. Samuel Doe yeah. is we- real. William Tolbert, right. the first yeah. president. So that the, the chronology is the same. Who is, who's in charge of uh, Liberia now? Right now, it's it's an appointed president. They haven't had an election. And for what him. happened to Taylor? Charles Taylor is in house arrest in Nigeria, living in a palace with a staff, and uh, he seems to be doing okay. <laughs> well, did you did you ever? In your research, managed to get over to Liberia. I went up and down West Africa from Ghana to Senegal off and on over the last few years, and Sierra Leone as well. And I went over a year ago, July, as I was kind of pulling the book together, then I figured I'd better go just to get the smell of the place down and the sound of the place down. I mean, I could learn and know an awful lot. Otherwise, there's an awful lot of material written about Liberia. But And I knew a lot of, I'd interviewed Liberians, Americans who had been Peace Corps volunteers and so forth. So your description of Monrovia in 1980, yeah, yeah. for instance. Yeah, that, I mean, 
mean, stuff like that. I mean, it's, there's a lot of material available. I have maps up and everything. I usually work with all kinds of documents and so on. But I went over in July a year ago to Sierra Leone. I thought I would go in overland because the airports were closed, and that may, may have been the only way I could get in from Freetown. Sierra Leone had just, its civil war had just ended, and the UN peacekeepers were in there kind of keeping uh, the warlords at bay. And just as that as I was there, Liberia blew up again, and that was the, you know, that was, um, it was when kids with Kalashnikovs were running up and down the streets of Monrovia, and the bodies were piling up, and and the warlords were closing the roads and kidnapping people, and so I just thought at this point, well, the better part of valor here is probably to do this from the border and look over <laughs> the fence <laughs> and not go in. So I stayed up in, in Sierra Leone instead. You did decide to bring her life into historical life. Now, her ca- her husband, I guess, w- Woodrow Subiano. He's an invented He's character. invented. Yeah. But Taylor is not, mm. Doe is not. Oh, right. At what point did you decide that you were going to do that and make sure it was Liberian-specific with Liberia's mm. history rather than mm. create a phony Jacksonia or something? Right, you know? yeah, yeah. That, that's what, yes, yeah, some people have done. I actually talked about doing that at one point because I was a little anxious everybody's an expert and everybody's got their piece of the planet that they know better than anybody else. And a lot of people know Liberia better than I will ever know it, of course, who've lived there and grew up there or whatever. And so there's a certain kind of appropriation that, uh, that I feel a little uncomfortable with at times when I'm writing about a part of the world or a place that I don't personally right. feel native to. So I talked with the, about it with a friend of mine, actually, he's a, a Haitian filmmaker that I'm working with in, on a couple of other projects, whom I trust very much, very political man. He lives in Paris and, and New York, and, and named Raoul Peck, who made a wonderful film last year called Lumumba, and, um, and he's lived in Africa, and he's now making a film about the Rwanda massacre, genocide for HBO. And he convinced me to go with it. He said, go with it. Uh, Liberia's story is an important story. And if you change the names and if you make it a kind of generic African republic or something, you're going to lose that connection to the American history of race. And you want that. And he's right. I wanted that. Um, he said, so no, take your chances and, um, and see what happens. And so far as using real historical characters, since these people are in Liberia during this period, these are the figures that are part of their lives, their, their daily lives and, their, and their, their public lives, then why not just let them function that way? There's also a shadowy character named Sam Clement. Well, the Mark Twain connection is pretty obvious yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he but, also wears a kind of white linen suit a lot of the time, too. <laughs> but, but he's... he's um, I guess the stand-in, we've seen this character yeah. before in fiction, yeah. this shadowy CIA guy who kind of knows everything and is ubiquitous yeah. in his presence. Yeah. What prompted you to put him there? Well, the CIA men I have known, <laughs> in <laughs> fact. I mean, uh, the cultural attache in so many countries where I have traveled have been clearly and obviously the, the CIA operative present. And so I knew that whoever was going to be there, that, that they would have to be in Liberia, a, a CIA operative with a great deal of power and presence because it was the largest CIA listening station on the continent for years during the Cold War. It was a very important, it was our aircraft carrier in Africa, uh, the country was. And so um, I knew that this would be a person who would have to 
play a part in the story. And I knew that he would end up being affiliated in various ways with Hannah and, and her husband. He is a minister of government. She is an American expat who might be also under indictment in the United States and could be easily extradited and therefore could be used and manipulated here if he wanted to for whatever purposes he might want. So it was it was a you know both a plot necessity but also a plausibility necessity. Such a person had has to exist. And then at one point I was interviewing uh, an old uh, friend of my father-in-law who had been in fact the uh, the station chief, the CIA station chief in in um, West Africa and Liberia and other places in West Africa during the 60s and 70s. So I asked him because he was now in his 80s and rather dotty and was happy to tell me almost anything I asked him because we I was a friend of the family and therefore I must have gone to Yale too and I must have <laughs> been in Skull and Bones as well. And so he was. Telling telling me whatever I wanted to ask him, answering whatever I wanted to ask. And so I said, is it plausible that the CIA was involved in the escape of Charles Taylor from prison in Massachusetts? And he said, well, you know, that was after my time. I retired just before that. But of course it's plausible, which is to say, yes, it happened. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, fine, that's all I really wanted to know. If it's plausible, then I can put it in the novel. You're listening to an interview with Russell Banks, whose latest novel is The Darling. Let's talk about Liberia and race in a more general mm -hmm. sense. First of all, specifically, what we had here was this strange democracy slash dictatorship of the ruling class of mm -hmm. Liberia, mm -hmm. the Americos, which mm -hmm. were the people descended from the slaves who came back, right. as opposed to the tribal people yeah. living there and a certain intermingling. Mm -hmm. And somehow, at the end of William Tolbert's administration, mm -hmm. The whole thing fell apart. Yeah. Why did it suddenly fall apart? The end of the Cold War. Up to 1989 or so, the Americo part of the population pretty much ruled. Uh, I mean, there was some, yes, some intermarriage here and there along the way, but, but the standards were set and the power lay in the hands of the Americo population. When the uh, African Americans were settled there in the, in the early part of the 19th century, they established a system of government and a culture that replicated almost exactly the overseer culture they had known in the South. Their relation to the native people, the tribal people, was the same as, as, the, as the overseers was to the slaves. So that 1% of the population essentially um, controlled and oppressed 99% of the population well into the uh, middle of the, of the 20th century. They were propped up first by U.S. economic interests and churches and government money coming from the United States and then by you know, companies like Firestone and so forth in the 20th century and then in the Cold War years by American State Department funds. They were the largest single recipient of foreign aid in Africa, of all the countries in Africa. And it all went into the hands of this small group of people who got to drive around in air-conditioned Mercedes Benzes and live in big houses and so forth and send their kids to school in the United States and so on and come over to the United States for medical procedures whenever they needed them and so on. This class, at the end of the Cold War, was abandoned suddenly. We just we just packed up and pulled so, out. So so basically, the U.S. Yeah. said goodbye. Goodbye. And we're going just, home now. Yeah. You know, and then the bar barbarians are at the gate, at and the they gates. just open exactly, the door. Exactly. Exactly. And then, but going with this, if you've got 150 years of corruption, because colonialism is a corrupt society, and it corrupts everyone who participates in it. It was a falsely supported, uh, inflated uh, society that was profoundly corrupt, top to bottom. And once you pull out the supports, I mean, then that everybody's at everybody's throat. So it's, it's almost um, 
a metaphor, mm-hmm. or it is a metaphor, mm-hmm. in fact, for a larger problem. Yeah, exactly. Which could happen anywhere. Well, it's, we see it happening in Iraq right now. <laughs> I mean, you can see it's going to happen around the world. It has, you know, go to the Philippines, you know, in, in, in the Spanish-American War. So, in a sense, what what happens is anarchy. You've got anarchy, and you've got, and you have all these warlord figures who are there, who who they're operating solely and strictly on the principle of greed and lust for power, and you know, then they break down the society. The kids become corrupted and 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 brought into into violence and. In a very short order, it's the only access they have to any kind of security or family or social structure is as soldiers. I mean, that's why you have these child soldiers now appearing in places across Central Africa and and, uh, and North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa as well. When the society breaks down, Mm. Hannah's kids, who were all Mm. raised in an environment Mm. that, even though it's in Liberia, is Mm. almost similar to the environment that she was raised. And Mm. I kept thinking, how could they turn so savage? Then I realized, wait a second, it happened to Hannah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it happened to Hannah in a format that we uh, recognize because it was, you know, white American middle class kids making bombs. Yeah, it happened to them in other forms too, but their whole society is destroyed and pulled out from under them. I mean, the father is butchered, the the city erupts in violence, their mother is this white American woman who's, who's, who's distanced from them because they have spent most of their childhood being raised in the context of their father's tribal family and, and the Capel people in this village in, in the bush. They've gone through the secret society rituals and so forth. They're identifying totally with him and his people, as he refers to them constantly, not with her and the, the, the suburban world that she kind of brought to them. So it's very quick to make that switch. It's instant. Yeah, yeah. And also they get structure out of that. I mean, they get protection in a, in a world where everybody's trying to kill everybody else. Someone has to protect you if you're a child especially. They get weaponry, they get prestige, they get food, drugs and, and alcohol, and they get revenge. And that's, that's important too for their father's death. You brought in this Jane Goodall angle, the chimpanzee Mm. angle, Mm. and I kept wondering whether that was just because she needed something to do or if you were saying Mm. something about the relationship of Mm. the human race to the species of chimpanzee. It's hard to say. You know, I I developed and had an ongoing interest, I should say, in in, uh, areas where humans engage other species and other species engage human beings and and attempt to communicate with one another, but in particular with higher primates, and it became chimpanzees that I got interested in quite separately from anything, any novel writing or anything like that. Just across the border from where I live in upstate New York, just across the border into Quebec, is a fantastic sanctuary, chimpanzee sanctuary. And I started visiting it. And then from that, I visited other chimpanzee sanctuaries in Ohio and Georgia and Sierra Leone and came to know, and then started reading everything available about it, but came to realize that the women and they're almost always women who run sanctuaries, are very like the women in the movement from the early days of the movement, the more radical end of it. They're white, upper middle class, usually educated, privileged people raised in idealistic, progressive families with a strong father with whom they identify across gender, who sacrifice many of the same things too, are willing to sacrifice career, family, social status, creature comforts and so forth in order to dedicate themselves to the protection of these endangered species, but particularly higher primates. And and the similarity of the two was what really struck me. And I thought there must be something there that's valuable and important and revealing about human nature, about 
politics, about political impulses, love of justice, when it can't be enacted in the human world. If you can't enact your love of justice, express your love of justice, except in rhetorical forms in the human world, what do you do with that love of justice? Because I do believe, I really do believe, that anyone who dedicates her life to um, the protection of an endangered species is committing, is making a political act. It's not just simply psychological, although we tend to treat it as if it were just psychological. And this is a, someone who's, oh, obviously she's thwarted sexually, therefore she's you know, going to go over and take care of the chimpanzees or the mountain gorillas or whatever, you know. And, and we tend to ridicule them in the same way we tend to ridicule the women who are involved in, in, in radical politics in the United States, too. We say, well, they must be sexually you know, screwed up in some way or oh, they had family problems. That's really why they're doing this. We don't see how layered it is and how multivalent valence the, the, the motivations are. It's all braided together, and, and that's what I was trying to get at. As far as the chimpanzees go and putting them in there, when you spend time with chimpanzees, it's hard not to fall in love with them. I mean, <laughs> and it was a way for me to spend time with chimpanzees. And I mean, one of the pleasures of writing fiction is you get to go places you can't go otherwise and be with people you couldn't be with otherwise. And, uh, and I wanted to spend time with the chimpanzees, and this was a way to do it. Russell Banks, when I talk to a lot of writers, I say, well, what are you doing here? And they always go, well, I'm exploring this idea through my fiction. I'm exploring it. I'm exploring it. When you're exploring something, do you ever reach a goal? Do you reach a conclusion? Does the writer, I mean, obviously the reader finds their own meaning out yeah, of it, but yeah. the writer is doing it for a slightly different, sure. in a different way, a different sure. reason. Do you ever reach conclusions from those explorations? I don't usually say I'm as exploring an idea. What I feel I'm doing is that I'm trying to penetrate a mystery, something that's mysterious to me in what I sense in as a meaningful way. And I, I give you the three examples here because I was trying to penetrate again, as, as I have in the past, the mystery of the mythology, American mythology of race. And you know, coming at it again from another angle because I didn't really dissolve all those mysteries the last time out, you know. I've got to come at it yet again because it remains, to me, um, so large a story with so many mysteries still in it. So there's that. And then I, I, there was the mystery of who were those women and where are they now and what do they make of their past? That mystery, I wanted to penetrate that because it, it relates directly to myself in certain ways. And then there was the mystery of chimpanzees. I wanted to know what they're really like. What is it like to be close to them for a long period of time, live with them? How close can you get to other species and so forth? I really wanted to penetrate that mystery. So that's, that's, that's sort of the way I look at it. Further, to try to answer the question, really, having somewhat redefined the terms, the truth of the matter is, and it's always been true for me, is that I might get to penetrate that mystery, but there's a further one that's <laughs> revealed through that penetration. And so the next book is the one then that takes up that mystery and tries to go there through it. But there's always a further mystery. And I mean, I assume there always is. If I reach a point where there isn't any, then I'll know that I've, I'm either brain dead or I've had some kind of nirvana and uh, experience and I have nothing in front of me now but bliss. Uh, and, I, <laughs> and I don't think that's going to happen, frankly. <laughs> Does a book on the African diaspora itself, is that going to come into this? 
I don't know, you know, if that, that might be for someone else to write, but I'm interested in certain, yeah, in chapters of that, I, I, as I think I've said elsewhere in essays here and there over the years, is that I think the story of the diaspora is the African diaspora is the central story, or runs centrally through American literature and through the American imagination, and that a writer who ignores that fact, ignores it at his or her peril, and runs the risk of not writing any fiction which is really central to the American imagination. We have a creolized imagination, I think, and it's important for me as a, you know, as an American writer, as a white writer, to understand that and to uh, to deal with and and use that as as a um, as a tradition to, to work in. Russell Banks, what are you working on now? Have you started the next? Yeah, I started a book this summer. I, I'm finished this and turned it in. Finally, my editor tore it out of my hands in, in May, and and so to avoid thinking about it, I started writing a novel. And I had four months in front of me to do this uh, to get rolling, and it was good. Beyond uh, saying that it's it's a novel set in 1936, the height of the Great Depression, and set in upstate New York where I live, in the Adirondacks. It's hard to know what else it really is about <laughs> at this stage of the game. But I'm doing that, and then I'm working on some film projects, and I'm doing some political work. You've been listening to an interview with the late Russell Banks, who died this past January at the age of 82, recorded November 11, 2004, in the KPFA studios while he was on tour for his novel, The Darling. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>